of the Gospel of Matthew. Could be any of them, because what we're trying to do in this whole series is, is fit together all of the different stories that we get from the four Gospels. But this is one of the earliest accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we're talking about this morning. So let's read from Matthew 28 and verse 1. Here we go. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Well, that's all we'll read, although there's a lot more you could read. Let's uh, get to this then, shall we, uh, for a few minutes. First of all, tonight we're going to uh, finish off the, the question we started last week about is there any proof that there's life after death? We live in a society which is being surveyed and questioned more than any before in history. There are so many opinion polls and uh, surveys and, uh, and reports on how people are feeling and how things are shifting. We know more about the inner contents of people's brains than any previous generation has done. And one thing it's showing very, very clearly is that people's beliefs about what happens after you die are changing quite considerably. You might think in a sort of secular society such as we've got that everybody now is thinking, oh, there's nothing after death. And that's certainly what you hear around the place quite a bit, isn't it? But lots of other beliefs are surging, and we'll say a little bit more about that tonight. And we need to have answers to what we can say when people come up with a different hope from our hope. There's a, a, a phrase that early Christians used to use about the hope, which you'll find in several passages in, in, in the New Testament. And the Christian hope is distinctive and it's different and it's far more important than any of the other ideas that people have come up with. But can you defend it? Can you find three good things you could say to people to show that what you've got is superior to anything else that people have come up with? That's the kind of thing we'll be looking at tonight, plus passages you can use from the scriptures to show uh, that what you're saying makes sense and uh, how you can turn the conversation back on the person who started talking about things in a much more profitable direction. So, all that's coming tonight. But anyhow, this morning, we're carrying on from last week where we were speaking about the, the, the cross, and you might remember some of the things that we said if you were here. If you weren't, this is a, a, a 
half a minute rerun for you. We said three things happened while Jesus was crucified. One, all sorts of prophecies, you can see them on the right-hand side there, were fulfilled. That's not a full list, that's just what I could get onto one side of a PowerPoint slide. And uh, so many things uh, happened that were a direct fulfillment of things that had been prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before. And we said at the time that this said something to Jesus. Jesus was weakened, he'd been beaten, uh, he was he 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 was hustled from one thing to another. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Okay, standing too far back. He was hustled from one thing to another, uh, and 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 the, the one thing I think that kept him going was the sense that he was fulfilling his father's will. He was doing what he was called to do. And as all of these things happened around him, it said something to Jesus about God's will. Yes, you're doing the right thing. Carry on. It's incredibly difficult, but this is where you're supposed to be. It said something to the world as well. All of these fulfilled prophecies talk about God's purpose in sending Jesus in the first place. And many people in those first centuries became Christians just because they heard the account of the crucifixion and what had happened and saw how it fitted together with everything that had been prophesied. Everything was pointing towards Jesus. And of course it says something to Christians too about God's love. About the fact that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That down through the centuries, God was planning this for us. He saw me ruin in the fall, yet loved me, notwithstanding all. And for centuries before anything happened, God was taking history forward towards the cross and the resurrection. And we talked too about the fact that people were cared for through all of it. The way in which Jesus' whole attitude, Father forgive them for they know what they do towards his enemies, convinced other people, such as the dying thief, who thought, you, there's more than a human being dying here. Look at the way he cares about uh, the people who are despising him and turning their backs on him. It led to the Roman soldier at the end too, didn't it, saying, surely this man was the son of God. And the third thing that happened on the cross, we said last week, was that peace was won. <laughs> it wasn't just a nasty accident. Jesus finished with a shout of triumph on his lips. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is achieved. I've done it. And because Jesus won peace for us on the cross, then uh, we can go, go on and talk this morning about resurrection. When Jesus defeated death, the evidence appeared on the third day afterwards. So, how did that weekend go? Well, on Friday, obviously, Jesus was crucified. We saw the hatred of those who were against him, who were determined to have him killed, whatever happened. And despite Pilate's weak resistance, nonetheless, they got their way. And uh, his mother uh, was, was weeping. Uh, the women at the cross were distraught. The male disciples stood a bit further back, but they didn't know quite what to make of it all either. And uh, at the end of the day, Jesus was put in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came, took the body, and put it in a tomb which was guarded because they didn't want anything funny to happen to this body. Jesus had said that within three days he would rise again, and that wasn't going to happen. And so the tomb was sealed, and a guard was put round it. Either the Jewish temple guard, who were fanatically devoted to the Jewish leaders, or else a squadron of Roman soldiers, and they didn't make many mistakes. And so it looked as if Jesus was gone. Saturday... Well, Saturday was a day of grief, I guess, amongst Jesus' friends. One of the worst affected must have been Peter, because Peter knew he'd let down his Lord the night before. And it would appear that Peter kind of fell out with the rest of the disciples. They stepped back in horror from what he, was done, he, he, what he had done, because he wasn't with the group on the next day in the same way he had been before. John was still around with him. John had been there when, when Peter betrayed uh, 
Jesus, and uh, um, he perhaps understood a bit more of what had led G uh, Peter to that horrific moment, and so he was there still with Peter, and when Mary Magdalene came back to find the disciples, Peter and John were the two who came to the empty tomb. But Peter must have spent Saturday in a horrible, terrible state. And then on Sunday, everything changed. As we've read in Matthew's Gospel, the stone was rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. The guards could look inside and see there was no body. They saw angels. They were terrified. They ran away. Then the woman arrived. And when the woman went into the, the, the tomb, Mary ran back straight into the city, told the disciples, and then came back herself because she just wanted to be there. She knew her Lord wasn't there anymore, but she wanted to be around where he had been. And through her tears, she saw somebody that she thought was the governor. <laughs> and then as soon as she heard her vo his voice, she realized a miracle had taken place. Jesus really was arrived. Now, there is so much you could say about the resurrection. It's the same with last week in the cross. I was thinking, how do I fit this into less than half an hour? This is crazy. And... Uh, Resurrection, you could talk about lots of things. I just want to make three very simple points this morning. Three facts about the resurrection that emerge very, very clearly. First of all, the grave was empty. Jesus wasn't there. There is no chance that this is some kind of fraud. And uh, as we saw a few months ago, the evening session that we did on how you talk about the resurrection to, to, to non-Christians, and people have got questions about it. One of the things that has changed people's minds through history has been the evidence that the grave really was empty. It had gone, and there was nowhere for it to go, unless a miracle had taken place. Second, the Lord was alive. Jesus really was not just a mirage or a ghost or something like that. He said to his disciples, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He was a real human person. He was back again and he was living and communicating with them. And the third thing is, as a result, the disciples were changed. So let's for a few minutes this morning just have a look at those three things. First of all, the grave was empty. Jesus was absolutely really dead. Sometimes you'll find people who will say, oh, you know, Jesus possibly just swooned in the grave. And uh, he, he was just, he was just uh, uh, very, very ill indeed. But he woke up in the grave and uh, thought, oh, wow, here I am, still alive. Right, let's get past these guards back into the city. And so he went back into the city of Purgis. I mean, Look, I've just risen from the dead. Well, that's absolutely impossible. For one thing, he was terribly weak. He'd just been scourged to within an inch of his life by Roman whips with incredible studs in them. The skin had been flayed from his back. He couldn't even carry his own cross the short distance up the road to Calvary. They had to get somebody to help him. Somebody in that condition was not going to withstand crucifixion, which was one of the most horrible, torturing ways for anybody to die. Second, sorry, I'm going on too fast, he was speared. That didn't happen at every crucifixion. But when it came to uh, the time to uh, do the curifragium, as they called it, Jesus didn't need it. The cruifragium was when they used to come around with a hammer and smash the bones, the leg bones, of people on the cross. Because ultimately, through crucifixion, you died through suffocation. Your limbs just couldn't keep, your limbs just couldn't cope with air anymore, and there was no way that you could, you could keep your system alive. And so, it's horrible, but sometimes when you hung on the cross for a few minutes, you were able to give yourself some relief just by pushing down on the bones of your legs against the nails and keeping your chest up. And the cruelty, frankly, almost the Romans, very nice way of making sure that didn't happen. They'd smash your bones. And so they came and looked at Jesus and saw that he was dead already. So his bones uh, were not broken. 
But they took a spear instead and stuck it in his side just to make sure. He was speared. A spear going up from underneath into his system must have been incredible medical harm, as we will see in a moment. And third, he was examined. When they took him down from the cross, what they usually did with people who'd been crucified was just toss them into a common grave. But this was someone who had said he was going to come back. It was also somebody who had died suspiciously early, and so he was examined by the soldiers on the orders of Pilate and the chief priests to make sure there was not a spark of life left in him. Then he was prepared for burial, (laughs) and that meant that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus brought along a a tremendous weight of spices, 75 pounds in all, that were laid on his chest. And if, if you're struggling to breathe because you've just been crucified and somehow you've still got a flicker of life in you, then the last thing you want is a 75-pound weight on your chest. Also, it was myrrh and aloes. Aloes had the uh, property of uh, draining all of the moisture out of your body. And that would have meant that Jesus in his condition would have, would have, uh, have succumbed very, very quickly indeed. He was wrapped in bandages. All of that stuff happened. And it was the worst way to look after somebody who was in that condition. Then he was left in the cold. This is the early spring in Jerusalem. We know it can be very, very cold overnight in Jerusalem at that point. And in a rock tomb, well, that's not a good place for a, a body that's between life and death to be left. If somebody's knocked over by a car in the road outside Great Parks, you don't pick him up and stick him in the fridge, do you? You take him to hospital and you keep him warm until the ambulance comes. The opposite happened to Jesus. So Jesus was really, really dead. So if he was, what happened to the body? Well, three things we know didn't happen, and they were the three theories that people came up with. You read one of those theories in Matthew 28, but there are two more as well. The body wasn't, first of all, stolen by the disciples. There was no way they could. It was the one grim in Palestine that was guarded that night. There was a seal round it. Meant a rope was, was stretched around those stones at the entrance with a, a blob of wax on either end and the impression of the emperor's head in the wax. And to break that seal was... Treason against the Roman Empire, punishable by instant death. It was just too risky to try. It was a rock tomb. There was no way you could dig into it or anything like that. The body was not stolen by the disciples. Second, it wasn't scrapped by the soldiers. It wasn't taken and tossed into the grave. As I've said already, it was examined very, very carefully. And then Joseph and Nicodemus appeared and said, we want to bury this body. He said where they were going to bury it, and the grave was marked, and the soldiers stood around it. Uh, uh, a guard was set on the tomb. Third, it wasn't stored by the authorities. Another theory that people sometimes had is that, well, maybe the body was moved. That was Mary's first uh, uh, idea when she came, wasn't it? Because when she saw the person she thought was the guard, and she said, oh, sir, they've taken his body, and I don't know where they've put it. But nobody had taken Jesus' body away for administrative purposes. <laughs> Because the one thing you know is that they were never able to produce it again. I mean, church after this, a few weeks later, the disciples are out in the streets of Jerusalem preaching about the resurrection. And the authorities haul them in and say, now, now look, this is wrong. We don't want you to do this anymore. You mustn't talk about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Okay? How weak. If they'd had the body, all they had to do was say, okay, right? What's this story you've got, Peter? <laughs> Jesus rose from the grave, did he? Uh-huh. Jesus is alive today. Oh, hey, lads, wheel him in. So you wheel in the stretcher, take off the blanket. There you are, Peter. One dead Jesus. Now go away and don't be stupid. They couldn't do that. Why? Because the body had disappeared. It wasn't being stored by them. 
Professor Alan Chalman is a, a Christian. He's also a, a historian of science at the Royal Astronomical Society, which means that he's both a medic and a scientist and an astronomer and a historian. And he's written a lot of stuff about medical history. He's fascinated with the resurrection because he says there's no way that uh, anything could have happened but Jesus rose from the dead. He said uh, about the spear thrust, for instance, it would, of course, have been a massive wound. If there's one thing of which we can be certain, it is that a Roman soldier knew how to kill people. And he goes into detail in his article, a very helpful article, but a bit bloodthirsty as well, about the, the details of the uh, um, various injuries that just that spear thrust would have caused in Jesus. And he said, when you thrust a spear into a body, you didn't just pull it out again, it stuck. And so you had to wiggle it around and pull it. Oh, ghastly. Let's not go into any more detail. But he said that in itself would have done so much more harm. And all of that uh, meant that Jesus really, truly was dead. And he sums it up like this. Had there been a modern state-of-the-art accident and emergency unit at the foot of the cross with resuscitators, uh, drips, blood transfusions, a top-class surgical team, the whole panoply of modern medicine poised to spread to action the moment Jesus was cut down, they would have found their task hopeless. And the wisest, the most skillful, and the most learned medical team in the world could only have said to Mary Magdalene, sorry, the damage is too great. Jesus the man is dead. When the disciples, Peter and John, arrived at the tomb, it says they saw and believed. Why? Well, this is probably what they saw. This is the best day. Uh, guess that we've had in the centuries for where the tomb of Jesus is. And that's the inside of the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And as you'll see, like all Jewish tombs in those days, it's rock on all the surfaces. There is no way to get through to it other than through the front. And the massive stone was rolled in front and sealed and guarded. And so there was no way the body could get out. And when he got in there, what really convinced him, I think, was the fact that the, the winding sheet to which Jesus was put was neatly folded. The turban put round his head had rolled away into the corner of the room. It looked for all the world as if something had just risen through it all. There wasn't a pile of bandages that had been hastily pulled off and left on the floor. It was neat. It was orderly. It was as if Jesus had just gone away because nothing could hold him back. That was what they saw, and that was why they believed. The body was really gone. But, you know, if that was all we knew about the resurrection... It would just be a mystery, like the Marie Celeste in the 19th century. Do you remember that story? A ship that was found in the middle of the ocean, uh, which was in perfect order, and obviously people had been there just a very short time before, but the whole crew was missing. And nobody knows why uh, the, the, the crew of the Marie Celeste disappeared. There are all sorts of theories about what might have happened to them, um, but nobody knows, and in a hundred years, all that we've got is the fact they disappeared. If that's all we know about Jesus, disappeared, didn't he? There would be all kinds of different possible theories, none of them very likely. But that wasn't the case. The Lord was alive and he appeared to people. Let's just trace what happened, for instance, that morning for a, for a second or two. Jerusalem and the tomb. The first thing that happens that morning is that three men or possibly more uh, uh, go out to the tomb. They're bringing um, extra spices and they're going to prepare Jesus' body properly because Nicodemus and uh, Joseph were only able to do a hurried job before the Passover started in the evening. You weren't allowed, if you were a Jew, to touch a body during the Passover. Um, and so they had to do a hurried job and just leave him uh, done according to the law but not finally said goodbye to. So the woman came to tend the body. And of course, when they got to the tomb, 
yeah, and, and some of the women involved were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and perhaps the Joanna, the wife of Herod, Stuart Chusa, follower of Jesus. Those kind of women came to the tomb. Then Mary Magdalene runs back into the city when she sees the empty tomb. When she hears the angels, she, 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 she wants to uh, bring the disciples back and, uh, and uh, uh, get them involved as well. So she goes back into Jerusalem, and the women, the other women, go into the tomb. They see the angel. They have the conversation that we've read out of Matthew 28. And then they start to go back to the city too. Meanwhile, Peter and John have been told by Mary Magdalene, and they run to the tomb and see what's happening there. Mary Magdalene comes back at a slower pace. And weeping, she comes back to the garden. Peter and John, having seen that the tomb really is empty, like that hysterical woman said, go back to the city to tell the others all about it. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene, at the tomb, meets the gardener and realises it's Jesus. She sees two angels first, and then she sees Jesus. The other women, meanwhile, have been to the city. They've passed on their message, and they're coming back. What happens with them? Well, they, the women see two angels and uh, have a conversation with them and they're told to go and tell his brothers to meet Jesus uh, in, in Galilee. Back in Jerusalem, Peter, John and Mary Magdalene are telling the others all about it. And on their way back, the women meet Jesus himself. And so Mary is the first. And then that group of women on their way back from the tomb meet Jesus on the way back in, as it says here in Matthew 28. And the first thing Jesus says is, greetings. Well, that's a pretty poor translation. Literally, the words he uses mean, oh, joy. <laughs> and so a group of women have seen Jesus alive. And they begin to, the thing begins to snowball that evening. You have the two people who are on the road to Emmaus. And they, too, meet somebody that they don't recognize to start with. But gradually, they begin to realize it's Jesus. And then Jesus disappears from them. And they run back into the city and tell the disciples. And before they've even got that story properly digested, Jesus is there to And they're worried. Is this a ghost or something like that? And Jesus says, don't worry. Let's have a meal. Is there any food? And he eats before them to show that it's really him. He's alive and he's back and it's the real Jesus. This is not some hologram, some, some kind of illusion that's going on. He's genuine. He's real. And a week afterwards, of course, the one disciple who isn't there that evening, which is Thomas, who steadfastly refuses to believe until he's seen Jesus for himself and felt the wounds and, and all of that sort of stuff. Thomas is there and Jesus appears and all that Thomas can see is, my Lord and my God. Over the next 40 days, the appearances continue. After the resurrection, the first appearances is to Mary Magdalene, the women. And Jesus makes a special appearance to Peter himself. Peter, who's spent Saturday distraught. People who's wondering what his future is. And the risen Lord visits Peter. And that, I think, is what gives Peter hope. <laughs> so that when the other disciples go up to Galilee, he goes with them. And when they're fishing and they see Jesus making breakfast on the shore... Peter, although he's shy-faced, has the courage to go and talk to Jesus because he realizes Jesus still has time for him. On the Emmaus road, Jesus meets his disciples and in the upper room, as we'd said, and then there's Thomas a week later. But it doesn't stop there either. There's the breakfast on the shore in Galilee. There's an appearance to James, one of Jesus' brothers. That seems to have happened. James seems to have had his own interview with Jesus, and that's why James becomes a believer too and uh, becomes a convinced Christian. There's a training and the Great Commission that goes on, and we'll talk about that in the final talk in this series. 
and uh, incidentally that one is going to be on tape but I'll tell you more about that later and uh, it's probable that when 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once it's talking about what happened on a mountain in Galilee the, the one that Jesus said come together and I'll meet you there and uh, so Jesus was seen by small groups, he was seen in the open air, he was seen in houses, he was seen uh, by 500 people at a time, he had individual interviews with individual people. That's the sort of thing that ghosts and phantoms and all of that spooky paraphernalia just do not do. This is a real living person who has returned. And one thing you find is that Jesus was the same. He was recognisable. They knew this was not somebody who might have been Jesus or might have been some other figure. This was really Jesus. He talked to them. He communicated with them. He taught them. He prepared them for the job they were going to have to do for him. And yet he was different. His body could do different things. It could appear and disappear. It could walk into locked rooms. It was capable of, of, of the kind of thing, things that the living Jesus, uh, previously living Jesus, couldn't do. And whereas Jesus was limited to one place with his disciples, he seemed to be able to get everywhere. And Paul talks about that, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 15 in the New Testament. And he says that the same is going to happen to us. That When we die, it's not that we become Jesus or something like that, but when we die, our body goes to sleep. But we're going to have the body again one of the days, but it will be a different body. It'll be the resurrection body. It's stone a natural body in the ground when you die, but it's raised a spiritual body. And Paul doesn't go into the, the, the kinds of things that the spiritual body will be different about, but it's a sign that death is conquered forever, that you're not subject to the same, uh, same process of, of decay and disrepair that your human body is. You're alive forever in the presence of somebody who conquered death himself. And so, as a result of all of that, the disciples were changed too. They were changed emotionally. They began to realize that Jesus was there forever with them. They began to realize that although they just got used to having a tremendous loss right in the center of their lives, the guy that they'd followed for three years and invested all their hopes in had just been taken away from them, he was back. It was different. And their emotions suddenly took a surge, which they never had before. They had a new purpose as well, because they started to remember the things that Jesus had said to them that they only half listened to before, and they began to realize that this was all part of a plan in which they were involved, and God was going to do big things still through Jesus. That's why you find them asking the living Christ, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore God's kingdom on earth? <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus doesn't answer them simply, but he says, listen, you're going to be witnesses to me throughout the whole world. You have a bigger job than you ever dreamt you would have. And all of those changes uh, uh, are, are, are part of what happened to the disciples. Peter, for example, devastated after he betrayed Jesus. You find him a few years down the line as an oldish man, knowing that he's facing death, writing things like this. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The sufferings of Christ at first were a shame to Peter. Because he'd backed away. He'd turned his back on his Lord at the moment when loyalty would be most important. But now he, could, he was saying, listen, if you suffer with Jesus, that means that glory lies ahead. You're going to be part of his, his, his glory and you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And he might have said, it happened to me. And I got to know there is in Christ and realized his forgiveness and the freedom he'd brought to my 
sinful, bombastic, big-headed life before, I began to realize this is something that's a source of real, real joy. And he wrote as well, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Jesus of Nazareth, no, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not anything to do with him. I may have a Galilean accent, but no, no, I've never heard of the man. No, what, Jesus, who did you say? That was the old Peter. <laughs> now you have somebody prepared to be crucified for his Lord too. And it's only a tradition, but the legend is, and it's a, a well-founded legend, that Peter was quite happy to be crucified, but he said, don't crucify me the right way up. <laughs> That's the way Jesus died. And I don't deserve to die in the same way as my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And that's an even more painful way to die. And uh, as a result, uh, Peter went to his death glorifying the Lord whom he'd once let down. Why was it the disciples changed so much? Well, they knew some things that we, if we're Christians today, need to remember. Had, had happened, had changed because of the resurrection. First of all, they knew now that Jesus would always be with them. And they remembered Jesus' promise just before he died. In that last interview in the upper room. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. <laughs> Jesus, the invisible presence, the transforming friend in all Christians' lives ever thereafter. And so it's not just a case of having to be with Jesus in a geographically bound area, because Jesus is present everywhere. And people all over the Mediterranean basin can come to know Jesus in just the same way as the disciples can. And so they take the message out and the church spreads all over the world. Because people in their own situation, in their own environment, from their own background, can come to know the same presence of a living Jesus. But second, they knew that there was uh, now a living link between humanity and God. If Jesus had risen again, that meant that somebody who had been a human being, a genuine, card-carrying, real member of the human race, was in the very presence of God. He conquered death, and he'd gone on to something uh, amazing. And so he was both God and man at the same time. And as Paul writes later to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator. A mediator being somebody who stands in the middle between God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. It's not as if some angel has come and said, okay, I'll stand in the gap, I'll try to join both sides. It's somebody who is both a man and God. Somebody who is the one person who in his nature can combine humanity and divinity and so make a living link for those of us who are only human to the very presence of God himself. And Hebrews talks about that later on, doesn't it? And the writer to Hebrews says, he had to be made like his brothers, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement. There's that word we used last week at the end. Atonement for the sins of the people. And atonement, as we said, comes from a word that means at one. He makes God and human beings come together at one again. And the same verse goes on, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus went through the human experience completely, yet without sin. And so as he triumphed over the power of sin and the devil in a real human body, his resurrection shows that he offers us the possibility 
of doing something like that. And so they knew, third thing, that Jesus had won an epic victory. That Jesus had done something that nobody had ever done before. And in Romans, later on, Paul was to write this. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life, most translations say, for our justification. But what does that really mean? How, how did his resurrection be for our justification? Well, the better way of translating it would be like this. He was raised because our justification was complete. If you or I still had sins that were unaccounted for, that the cross had not covered, that Jesus had somehow not managed to die for, then we'd still be in the mess we were in before. But Jesus rose again because our justification was complete. And if we were still liable for sins that Jesus had not died for, he would have stayed in the grave. The only reason Jesus rose was because his, done, his job was done. It is finished. And so they knew that everything was going to be different in future. Fourth, they knew they had a friend in heaven. Here's a guy who needs friends at the moment. This is Donald Trump in one of his many trials going on right now, surrounded by other people. And most days, uh, uh, he is not there, but they are. Why? Because they are his advocates. <laughs> they are the people who stand up and speak for him. Mind you, he does a lot of speaking in the courtroom as well, and as a result, he's been fined quite a bit of money and slapped down by the judge several times. But officially, they are the people who are trying to make a case for him and trying to get him out of trouble. And uh, the New Testament says that Jesus is our advocate. First John, for example, says, if anybody does sin, John says, you shouldn't sin, I don't want you to, I'm writing these things to stop you from sinning, but at the same time, if anybody does sin, it's not curtains for you, it's not all over. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Because Jesus has risen again to stand in the courts of heaven, pleading for you and me. We have an advocate with the Father. And we don't have to rely on the best defense that we can make at the last judgment. Well, I, I tried to be a nice person and I helped old ladies across the road. We have somebody who can speak far more powerfully in our defense and can plead the merits, not of our sinful hearts, but of all that he did to rescue us and bring us back. And there's a final thing. They knew they were going to have a new power that they'd never experienced before. You might think, why a picture of a deadbeat Honda 50? Well, that is not my bike, but that is exactly like the first motorbike I ever had when I was a student. I didn't have a driving license. I wanted to get about the place, and so I persuaded my dad to lend me some money so I could buy a motorbike. And it was a little 50cc pop-pop. You weren't allowed to take it uh, on motorways, so I used it partly to get up to my girlfriend in Liverpool, and not Anthea, somebody else, but that's another story. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, it was great because in those days you could do it on 20 pence worth of petrol. It was very economical on fuel. The drawback was it took you six and a half hours to get there from Oxford. And when you got there, they had to lift you off the bike because you were frozen stiff. But that was okay. And I did it a few times. And it's, what I didn't realise, when I bought that bike, I took it out of the showroom. And the guy who uh, uh, released it to me was not really very interested because he was interested in the big sort of 750cc bikes he was trying to sell. Yeah, this bike is quite simple. It's, you're you're going to organise it. I didn't have a handbook. I didn't really know how it worked. He said, oh, so on you go. All right, fine. So, so I rode it away and I worked out it had two gears 
You know, there was one, one more gear that you used as first gear to start it off, and as soon as you were going at a reasonable speed, you went into second gear, and that was fine because it was marked on the handlebars, no problem. And uh, I, it was fine until you tried to go up a hill, and then you were slower than a funeral procession going up the hill. I thought, this is not right, there's got to be something else here. And it wasn't until I met a girl who had a similar bike to me. She was one of my friends. I said, how are you getting on? Have you found third gear yet? I said, third gear? There is no such thing. She said, yes, there is. She said, haven't you read about it in the handbook? I haven't got a handbook. Oh, well. And so she showed me what you have to do. And it's very simple. And suddenly I found, whoa, this thing was surging forward in a way I'd never expected. I was reaching the amazing heights of 35 miles an hour. <laughs> and uh, could get it up to 50. And I just didn't know it was there. It was there all the time. But this new power in my bike just transformed my life. Still took me six and a half hours to reach Liverpool, but hey, you can't do much about that. And this is what happened when the disciples were transformed by the resurrection. The very power that brought Jesus back from the tomb was now available to them. Oh, not there and then. They had to go through the training course first. Jesus had to go in heaven and give them the Great Commission. And then he had to wait in the upper room until the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. But when it came, the third gear had finally arrived. It was amazing. And uh, uh, jo uh, Paul, again, later on, writes about this, the fact that it's a resurrection power that makes Christians' lives different. He talks in Ephesians about this. His incomparably great power for us who believe is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The same power that blasted Jesus back from the tomb is the power that's working through you and me right now. We should be in third gear all the time. <laughs> um, and so, with all of those different things, it became obvious Jesus really had risen from the grave and life would never be the same again. Sometimes people say, final thing I'm going to say this morning, that the greatest poet in Scottish history is Rabbi Burns. And I often meet people who say, oh, you're a Scotsman, you must be really keen on Rabbi Burns. Well, actually, I'm not. I mean, I think there's a great poet, but it's... Uh, if he was alive today, he was certainly in the sort of uh, Rolf Harris, Russell Brand kind of class where they were treated women, and he'd get locked up pretty quickly, I think. He was a fairly disreputable human being, I think. Our great poet, actually, is William Dunbar. You've never heard of him, have you? Okay. He was in the 15th century. He was one of a, a group of Scottish poets that, uh, that uh, uh, copied the style of Chaucer down in England, and they wrote some great stuff. And one of his great poems, he's remembered for two poems, and one of them is a thing called Timor Mortis, The Fear of Death. And it's about Dunbar getting older. And every stanza in the poem talks about some of his friends who've died, whom death is dealing with, others who are very ill, and how he feels about himself and his bodily strength, and he realises he's not going to be around forever. And every verse ends with Timor Mortis Conturbat Me. It's a Latin phrase that means the fear of death. Uh, disturbs me and it's like a death knell at the end of every verse Timor Mortis Conturbat Me but his other great poem is a poem that talks about what his hopes were and it's got a Latin tag at the end of each verse as well and it's one of the most powerful poems about the resurrection that I know done is a battle on the dragon black 
Our champion Christ confounded has his force. The gates of hell are broken with a crack. The sign triumphal raised is of the cross. The devils tremble in their hour of woe. The souls are ransomed and to heaven she can go. Sprexit dominus de sepulcro. That's a Latin tag because at the end of every single verse, the Lord himself has risen from the grave. And he goes through all the different things that the resurrection means and all that it come, brings to a human life. And again and again you get the refrain, Surexit Dominus de Sepulpo. The Lord has really risen from the grave. That's great Scottish poetry. And that is our hope this morning. <laughs>